Hello everyone, and welcome to The Good Lawyer Show. I'm your host, Matt Scrivens, and alongside me is Good Lawyer CEO and co-founder, Brett Colvin. On the show this week, we are happy to welcome Ian Holloway, who is the Dean of Law at the University of Calgary. Since starting this podcast a few months back, we have been fortunate to interview some heavy hitters in the legal profession. Former heads of law societies, deans of law schools, authors, business owners, and all of these people have had resumes that, frankly, make me feel a little bad about myself. With that said, one of the things that has struck me is that despite their heavyweight status, every single person that has come on the show has been incredibly approachable, candid with their remarks, and you invariably leave with the sense that they care deeply about the law and the state of the legal profession. And I don't think there is a better example of exactly this than with Dean Holloway, who as you will hear has the all-star resume, is obviously a highly intelligent person, but matches it all with a unique humility that leaves you comforted knowing that people like this exist and are active thought leaders in the profession. UFC Law, you are very fortunate to have such a great Dean at the helm of your school. Our conversation with Dean Holloway covers how the UFC Law School is preparing for an online semester due to the COVID-19 outbreak, how legal education will need to evolve and adapt in order to keep pace with the changes being experienced in the legal profession, and we'll also discuss why Dean Holloway believes that articling, the practicum element required to become a lawyer, is an outdated concept whose days are numbered. As a quick note of housekeeping before we jump into the conversation, I want to let you all know about the Good Lawyer newsletter, which is a weekly summary of stories relevant to small business owners in Canada and also includes links to both our recent Good Lawyer webinars and our latest promotions. To sign up, simply visit our website at goodlawyer.ca and enter your email address in the sign up form. All right, that's all from me. Let's jump into our conversation with Dean Holloway. Dean Holloway, welcome to The Good Lawyer Show. How are you doing today? I'm great, thanks. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you very much for taking the time, especially I know we're ramping up for school to begin, so I imagine that you have a hundred things on your plate. But just in general and with your job, how are things going with you? Are you handling the COVID situation okay? Oh, well, thanks for asking. Uh, on the whole, yes. Uh, you know, like everyone, we've found ourselves having to make uh, quite a a dramatic and unexpected and, and unplanned for transition. Um, you know, I say to people, we, we made mistakes, there've been bumps on the road, but on the whole, we've handled it quite well as a law school. Oh, that's, uh, that's excellent. I'm, I'm happy to hear that. Sounds like you have a good staff uh, supporting you with this transition. Oh, they're wonderful. Well. I'm blessed by many things, but uh, that's pretty high on the list. They're great. Absolutely. And, and I mean, just like law school in general, and I'm just, you know, thinking back to my time in law school and, you know, I'd be lying if I said I went to every, every lecture and certainly some of my colleagues in law school effectively did their entire law degree remotely, you know, mm. pop in for a few classes here and there, do an exam at the end of the year, but mostly self-studying at home. So like, you know, as compared to, I don't know if you need to get into the lab because you're doing some chemistry, you know what I mean? Like law lends itself really well to a remote world. But well, I, it, it doesn't and, and it doesn't. Um, I mean, it, it does in the sense that, as, as you said, Brett, we don't have to get into laboratories or things like that, but we do have significant clinical programs, of course, mm -hmm. uh, and those are all human-facing things. But I also think that, you know, humans are social animals, and um, 
what I sometimes call the transactional part of legal education can relatively efficiently be done online. You know, mm -hmm. this is what the Income Tax Act says. This is what uh, you know the Supreme Court of Canada held, and and so on. But the um, the the nuanced uh, um, part of it. I don't think does so well. I think that we need, as lawyers, and a member of the law is a social endeavor, we need to learn how to uh, bounce off one another and uh, the, the value of being able to walk down the corridor and, um, and bump into someone, right. have a discussion that leads to a whole new train of thought that you hadn't had before. Totally. So I, I do think that it won't be a disaster, but it's not as good as human contact law school. So, and you just were, even you just talking there was bringing me back to first year in particular, where I was in a study group with, you know, five yeah. or six guys mm. and, you know, we would go into a classroom and we'd learn chapters together and we would debate and we would discuss. And not only did that dramatically further my own learning, it was so enjoyable. You know, law school was definitely three of the best years of my life. I really enjoyed it. And, and to your point, Without that, uh, in the classroom debating with my friends about, you know, these new things that we were learning, it would have been a totally different experience. Yeah, no, it's true. I, I agree. And, and, I, and I will say I'm worried. We, we all remember the, the bonding that mm -hmm. went on in first year in, in particular. Mm -hmm. and, and really, uh, another way to put that is that the, the process of professional acculturation which begins not necessarily in the classroom, but it begins at the pub or the bowling night or the movie night or, or, or whatever. And you know, that's one of the things I worry about is how well, you know, the class of whatever it is, 2023 uh, is going to coalesce uh, compared to a traditional class. So, so as the three of us are speaking, we're actually having a bunch of meetings to talk about what kinds of things we can do in lieu of natural bonding opportunities that we all have. Yeah, it should be a, an interesting experiment to say yeah. the least. And uh, I think a lot of people will be watching quite closely to see how these next couple of years uh, manifest themselves over time. But before we get into this, because we will be revisiting uh, the future of, of law and obviously sure. how that relates to law school and how we educate our future lawyers. But why don't we just start out by uh, getting you to tell our listeners a bit about yourself, a bit, a bit about your background and your current role as Dean of the University of Calgary Law School. Sure. Well, no, th thank you for asking that. Um, well, um, I come from the Maritimes. I come from New Brunswick. So I, I went to high school, finished high school in St. John, New Brunswick, and then I moved to Nova Scotia and went to, did my undergrad and went to law school at Dalhousie. Uh, I practiced law in Halifax for, uh, for a number of years uh, with a wonderful firm that I'm still connected with uh, called McInnes Cooper. After, I guess I was in my fifth or sixth, fifth year of practice. Something unfortunate happened, and that is my mother, uh, who went into who raised me, went into hospital for routine surgery, and things went awry in the operating room, and she ended up passing away. And uh, oh. it was a terrible, terrible thing for, for me. Um, and but the silver lining behind that dark cloud was I thought, oh boy, I could be run down by a bus tomorrow. Is this all I want in life? Right. Uh, and the answer was no. I didn't know what I wanted, but I knew that it was something more than just sort of carrying on the partnership track at a at a firm in Halifax. So then I moved to the United States where I did my master's degree in law at the University of California at Berkeley. And God bless my firm, they, they gave me a leave of absence. To, oh, excellent. Uh, yeah, they were wonderful. Uh, they are wonderful. And then I um, moved back to Canada for a year uh, after, <clears throat> after the US where I served as the law clerk to the, to the Chief Justice of the Federal Court of Appeal. And how was that? 
Yeah, and how do you make that leap? Yeah, yeah, that, that that's something we want to touch on there. That sounds yeah. Quite... Well, I mean, it, it was it was an unusual thing. I mean, it's it's like so many of the things and so many of the good things in life. It, it wasn't planned. It was just pure serendipity. So, when I was at Berkeley, I decided that I wanted to do a PhD, but there was necessarily because of application times and so on, there was going to be a year's gap. So I thought, well, what do I do for a year? And so I wrote to the federal court. Just it was a general letter asking if they employed research lawyers at all. And through no credit to me, my timing was impeccable because a new chief justice had just been appointed, and he didn't want a law clerk who was fresh out of law school. He, right. The fact that a letter appeared on his desk from some guy who'd been out for seven or eight years uh, was of great appeal. And so I was invited to Ottawa, and I thought I was going to Ottawa to be to interview for a position as a research lawyer. And uh, in fact, I realized when I got in his office that no, no, it was a different thing altogether. And so he hired me, and it was it was great. He was wonderful. A wonderful man, a guy named Julius Isaac. He was the, the first African-Canadian uh, to be appointed to high judicial office in Canada. Uh, awesome. Extraordinary story. He was no from, originally from Grenada in the West wow. Indies. And he uh, won a scholarship uh, to, go to, to come to Canada in the 1950s and studied law. He um, worked his way through law school. This is what they did. I mean, it's, it's a story of, 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 of a bygone Canada. But there were a small handful of black kids in his class. And um, Bor Alaskan went on to be their great chief justice, um, got them all jobs as porters on the railroad. Um, and that's how he worked his way through law school. He wow. would go to class Monday to Friday, and then Friday night he would get on the train and work uh, west, I think Winnipeg, he told me, or Regina, and then come back and work his way back and be back in Toronto for Monday, Monday morning. And that's how he got through law school. And Laskin found him an articling position because, of course, in those days, you know, most law firms wouldn't hire black or Jewish uh, or Asian, uh, Asian law graduates. And then he went home to the West Indies, went home to Grenada, and uh, eventually became the chief magistrate there, <clears throat> the chief judge of the, of, the, of the country. And in 1970, I guess it was, or thereabouts, there was a, a Marxist revolution. And because he was a part of the establishment, he was a target. So he had to flee, and he came back wow. to Canada. And it says something about our profession at the time that we made him article again. So he did, uh, and eventually he w was admitted to the bar uh, and became a chief justice of the federal court. So how cool is that? I mean, a guy... Very cool. I don't know of any other, uh, who, who, in modern times anyway, who, who can claim to have been the chief justice of two different... No, that, that, is the, that is a book. Yeah, pretty cool, right? Eh? That definitely yeah, needs to be a book. So he was wonderful. He was, he was a great guy to work with, and I learned a lot, and I owe him a tremendous debt. Uh, it's, um, it's interesting. If I can just ask one quick question, what, what's your opinion then on uh, how most clerks at, uh, that help judges at uh, whatever level of court are fresh out of law school and generally have no experience? Obviously, it seems like it would be quite advantageous to have someone like yourself. Maybe that's impractical due to professional expectations. As you mentioned, you were on the path to being a partner at the time and it just happened to work out. But you'd think that that would be something that uh, every judge would be very excited to have uh, an experienced lawyer uh, help them out uh, as a clerk. Yeah, you would think, wouldn't you? Um, I, I think part of the problem is it's, it's the general problem facing our profession, and that is inertia. It's a very powerful force, right. and it's why you know, change is hard. It's, it's yet another illustration of the fact that, that change, is, change is hard. So after the Chief Justice, I, um, I went to Australia to do my PhD, and um, 
I don't know, a year or so after I arrived there, a teaching job came up and I applied for it and got it. And uh, so I ended up, I finished my PhD part-time while I was, I was uh, beginning my academic career. And so things were going well there. You know, I, I got tenure. I was quite prolific. One day, I think it was in 1998, the associate dean had a, had, a, had a bit of a breakdown. And the dean came to me and he said, look, I, I need your help. And I said to him, I remember this distinctly. I said, are you crazy? If this is what's happened to you, not, not a chance. And he said, no, no, I need your help. And so I felt very loyal to him. And so I became his associate dean. So I spent my last two years there, I guess a year and a half, I was the associate dean. And uh, then I was recruited. I mean, that sounds grander than it was, but I was invited, I guess, to apply to become dean of law at Western, the University of Western Ontario. Great. And so I moved back to Canada in August of, in July of 2000. That's a big appointment. That's a big appointment. Like, did that just come about or was there any? Well, you know, I, I mean, look at, look at his background yeah. at this time. Yeah, yeah right? I know. Like, you're, you're making it seem like, oh, and then uh, became Dean of Law at uh, Western uh, University. <laughs> That's like people worked their whole careers to get him at a point. Well, I mean, I mean, the, the story, the, it's a true story. So I was speaking at a legal history conference in, uh, in Newcastle, Australia. And uh, after my talk, a guy in, who had been in the audience came up to me and he was a Canadian, I learned, and he said, let's go for beer. And so we did. And he said, we're starting a dean search. You should apply. And I, on, I honestly, honestly, guys, I thought he was joking, uh, <laughs> but he, he was very persuasive and insisted. And I thought, oh, well, what the heck? And so I put in my application and... Uh, Excellent. There you go. So I ended up in 2000 moving, moving to London, Ontario. And so I was in London. We, we were as a family in London till 2011 when we moved to Calgary. Amazing. So I, and I, I was, I'm reluctant to bring this up, but I do need to air a slight grievance with you now that I have you on the line. Okay. I, I will say of all the law schools I applied to, U of C was the only one that rejected me. All right. And, and it wasn't, it wasn't like slow either. Like I applied and it was like next day, Ooh, right that, red, that red X was on it right away. So, you know, as uh, I, I'm happy to hear that this transition happened there, although I'm still hurt by your institution. I, well, I, I and you would have, and you missed out. I just want you to know, you missed out on a very average law student. I just oh, want you well, to well, so Matt, you should come back and do a master's degree. It's never too late to be to true. be a you oh, a, a law Don't lover. don't give him any crazy ideas. <laughs> you might jump on it. Uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. No, that sounds excellent. So it, that uh, it's it's nice that that worked out. So it seems like your career has been kind of one seamless almost uh serendipitous step yeah, next. yeah. That, that's the key it's it's all been serendipitous you know we we tell our students and and i think it's good advice you should plan a five-year plans and so on uh, but i've never done that myself i just kind of <laughs> Me neither. from one thing to the one thing to the next no plans just make good decisions you know that's well and and you know i think one one sort of seam running through the whole um story about your very intriguing career from you know the Navy to practicing and, you know, everything afterwards is the sense of adventure. And, you know, I think that that's a characteristic that we don't see as often yes. in lawyers, but one that I think, you know, if more lawyers were willing to take a little bit more risk and, and you know, go on some of those adventures, they would find a lot more fulfillment as I'm sure you have. You know, I, I, 
I agree. People sometimes say to me, you know, what advice would you give a, uh, a new law graduate? And I, I typically offer three bits of advice, two of which sound very old fashioned, but the third of which, uh, third part of which sounds a bit unconventional. And the old fashioned parts are work hard and be honorable. And, and yes, they may sound un, uh, old fashioned, but they're real. You know, sitting on the couch, watching the Kardashians isn't going to get you anywhere, no matter what your, <laughs> your career ambitions are. And uh, there's our snippet. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And, and, you know, being a sharp, a sharp practitioner, um, uh, or, you know, someone you're going around with your elbows up, that's not going to get you anywhere either. But I'm one of those people, and I'm not the first to say this, but I'm one of those people who believes that I've learned much more from my failures than from my successes, much more. It's not fun at the time, you know, you know, we all we're, we're all human, so we feel sorry for ourselves and, you know, think it's, you know, the, the world's unfair and doesn't appreciate everything we have, to, we have to offer. But it's made me a much better, much more resilient, a much stronger uh, uh, person. And so I, so the third bit of advice is take risks. It may not work out. You may fail. Um, and you Love won't that. like that. It'll suck at the time. <laughs> but you're going to be a better person for it, for failing. I love that piece of advice. I, you know, I think lawyers are inherently risk averse, as I mentioned, but, you know, taking risks and recognizing that the world isn't going to fall down at the end of it, even if it goes poorly, um, you know, looking for the upside. I've always been a guy, I'm constantly looking at the upside. Um, and I surround myself with people that keep an eye on the downside. Um, (laughs) but you know, I think that that's a, a characteristic that a lot, a lot of lawyers, cause you know, a lot of people end up in law school cause they're smart. Often it's sort of a, I don't know exactly what I want to do, but I'm, you know, I can get into law school and that seems super productive. I know that was me. Um, But once you get there, because I think being, becoming a lawyer is like an awesome career and can be hugely fulfilling, um, but you have to go get it and you can't expect that, you know, this fulfilling life is just going to fall on your lap if you, you know, build 2000 hours a year, because it's not. Well, I think that's right, Brett. And, and I think it's, it's, it's even more important now and in the future than it, than it may have been in the past. You know, when I was at my old law firm, I mean, when I think about it, it's quite extraordinary. Um, every single one of us at the firm, and it was a big firm, you know, for, for the standards of those days, every single one of us had gone to the same law school, We'd gone to Dalhousie Law School, and every single one of us had been at that firm their whole career. Right. I mean, that world just doesn't exist uh, any longer. And one of the things that, uh, you know, you know for, for, for good or ill, one of the attributes that tomorrow's lawyers are going to need more than yesterday's lawyers is our entrepreneurial skills and, mm. and you know, an entrepreneurial mindset. And, um, you know, I, jo- I sometimes joke with law students <clears throat> and I say, you know, you're all risk averse. That's the problem. That's why you're in law school rather than doing an MBA, right? It's because you're all, because you're all risk averse. And I, I, I do mean that as a joke, but, but underlying the joke is, um, is a, is a serious point. And, and maybe it's something that we in law schools need to think about is, you know, you know, could there be a way if one accepts or if one believes that entrepreneurial, an entrepreneurial mindset is a, is an increasingly important attribute of lawyers, is there a way that we can probe for that, right? We can probe for gray matter because we have the LSAT and the GPA. Right. We can probe for, you know, writing skills because most law schools have a, some sort of writing sample, personal statement you have to submit. But is there a way 
to probe for things like an entrepreneurial mindset, emotional intelligence, resilience, right? Um, those sorts of things. Well, and, and uh, you're kind of touching on it right now. So why don't we uh, transition into exactly that? Because I, I did want to ask you, you know, obviously, as the dean of the University of Calgary Law School, uh, how do you see the changes in the legal profession, which we have been seeing over the past few years and accelerating, whether that be the advancements of technology, the, uh, the emergence of multidisciplinary practices in some uh, jurisdictions? How do you think that this will affect the way that educators teach our future lawyers? And how do you think that this will affect uh, how law schools go about doing their job? And I think you just kind of touched on one exact, uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask was, do we need to start teaching business classes and then entrepreneurial classes, maybe even some technology classes to help the future lawyer uh, be able to step into practice in a more uh, prepared way? Um, I mean, the short answer to that question is yes, but <laughs> let, me, let me flesh it out. Please. Yeah, I'll just say yes. Um, <laughs> now, let, let, me, uh, let me flesh it out a bit further. So, so I think that if we look at what's been happening in our world since, I don't know, the end of the Second World War, at least since the 1960s, we've seen a conflation of, of a number of forces. One is, <clears throat> is the technological revolution. Right. Uh, another is, is globalization. Now, that's an overused term, but it's a term that describes something, something real. And at the moment, we're, in a, we're in, a, in a period of maybe increasing insularity, but, the, but globalization isn't going, mm. isn't going away. And though that, that conflation is meaning that the kinds of legal services that people need and the way in which people want to access those services, those things are changing. And if those things are changing, it means that the legal profession has to change. And to me, anyway, it seems axiomatic that if the profession has to change in order to better serve the public, then we in the law schools need to, need to change as well. And so this led us um, uh, at Calgary to introduce a few years ago something that we call the Calgary Curriculum. And the Calgary Curriculum is based on, on a, a, a couple of different premises. One, the, f the first one is what I just described to you. Right. That tomorrow's lawyers need to know. They still, of course, of course, need to know basics. That's that's non-negotiable. But they need to know other things as well. But also, we now know a lot more about how adults learn than they knew in the latter part of the 19th century right. when the conventional model of legal education, the one that we all had, was developed. And what the research tells us, and the research is unequivocal, unequivocal on this, is that adults learn best through. Um, intense exposure to ideas with the opportunity with lots of opportunity to engage with or to practice mm. using those ideas in other words the research and it's research done by brain scientists right not, not by lawyers but by people who understand how the how the brain works the traditional dichotomy that we drew in legal education between theory and skills is a false dichotomy <clears throat> i sometimes put it this way i say that a lawyer with theory but no skill is useless and a lawyer with skill, but no theory is a malpractice case waiting to, waiting to happen. <laughs> so when we put all that together, it led us to adopt the, the Calgary curriculum and it includes some features which are structural. So uh, all of our students now in the course of their JD do um, four three week long intensive courses uh, where they're doing one course at a time. You know, one is on negotiations and mediation. One is on advocacy. One is on um, legal research and writing, and one is a is a is a, a boot camp. Law school begins with a three week long boot camp, an introduction to uh, 
into law and the legal system, the foundations of law and justice, as we call it. So part of it is structural like that, um, um, but also a, a big part of it is content. So, for example, we offer business skills for lawyers. We teach leadership uh, in the law. We teach leadership for lawyers. We teach legal project management. Uh, we so important. Uh, provide an opportunity for our students to get uh, Six Sigma qualified, right. Lean Six Sigma qualified. Um, we, uh, we run, like most law schools, we have a, a legal aid clinic, which, which does some great, great work. But in addition, you know, acknowledging that most Canadian lawyers practice as solicitors rather than barristers, we run something called the Business Venture Clinic. Right. As, um, so we provide free legal services to small business people and entrepreneurs. So students in law school can actually incorporate companies and do partnership agreements and so on and work under the supervision of... Uh, of uh, of uh, of experienced lawyers doing that was things. that was me and Matt when we were at BLG helping with the venture clinic. Well, there you go. That's yeah. right. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, and I think I think the point that you made about uh, the block weeks and taking one thing at a time, I think, is so valuable. I I know one of the well, I was cursed uh, with getting a first year summer job immediately, which took some of the uh, motivation out of maybe being as diligent as I should have at, at some points in my law school career. But the other thing that I that I struggled with was you have very dense subject matters and coming in as a 1L or 2L even uh, law student, you are just really learning the, the four corners of what this whole thing is about. And then when you're expected to learn, you know, property and torts and crim and everything else, all all at once, I found that shifting of gears to be uh, a little bit difficult for me at first to really figure out, okay, like, what are you looking for? And I think if I had, let's say, instead of spread out over four months, a four week intensive, like, hey, just focus on this, figure this out one thing at a time. I think that really would have helped. Have you seen some good results from, from that change? Well, um, yes. Um, so when we adopted the Calgary curriculum, we said after we've been through a full cycle, in other words, a class went from year one to articling, we'll, do, uh, we'll have an external review done. And so uh, we got the results of that. And, and, and as we anticipated, it told us there are things that we can do better and uh, things we, we need to improve and so on. But it also told us that we were on the right track, that on the whole, our students are, are able to hit the ground running. That's, an, right. that, that, that's another overused expression, but are, are, are able to make the bridge to, from law school to the working world right. maybe a bit more smoothly. It's, it's a bit less shocking to them than it might be, that they are able to draw connections between different areas of the law. You know, okay, so this is right. what I'm learning. I'm learning about reasonable in tort right now. And uh, this is why it's relevant to what I'm studying in contract, for right. example. We also think we're on the right track because at the back end, um, our students are um, doing very well in the employment market. In fact, there, there's one law school in Canada this past year that was able to report 100% placement of students looking, and, and that was us. And that's Calgary in the middle of a downturn, wow. and we right. still had 100% placement. That's, and I just want to jump on that for um, one second, too, because I've been really interested in exploring, because I, I remember when I went through the recruitment process at U of A, and, you know, I didn't do it first year because I was running a business that summer, and then the next summer went through the whole process and, you know, interviewed at all the big firms, but that was like the only successful option 
as I, I, I could perceive it. Like in law school, if you didn't get a big firm interview, right. that somehow since I was, I would have, you know, I, yep. I had the interviews, but like I saw so many of my colleagues without the interviews and it, there was like this total sense of failure. And then I got to the big firm and, and, you know, I have a lot of love for BLG too, but like that was not where I wanted to end up. You know, I'm not, I didn't want to be the company man in the big firm. I wanted to go and start my own thing. Hence the t-shirts we're wearing right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I didn't think that I didn't even know that was an option. Like it was either big firm or bust. And you know, I, I don't know how UFC does it, but I know that it seems to me like a lot of the law schools are pretty similar with the on-campus interviews. And it feels like there's this way too big of an emphasis. And obviously they pay to play on big firm recruitment to the detriment of the rest of the profession in terms of smaller and mid-sized shops, but also the students who get sort of funneled into this one avenue before, for me, I had any opportunity to assess what the differences even were. You're right. Yeah, no, that, that it, it's, it's a fair point. I, I, I will say that we, we, we're very conscious of this. You know, I say to students, look, if, if there's nothing wrong with, with big firms. They are critical to the future of our legal economy, our professional economy in Canada. And if Alberta is going to really is going to transition to um, uh, a new type of economy, that we, we can't do it unless big firms are there. And those big firms are either going to be in Calgary or Toronto or New York or London. So all else being equal, let's have them in Calgary. But it's not, they're not everyone's cup of tea. And so we, we work very hard at getting that message out to our students. I'm sure we could do better. Uh, I'm sure we make mistakes. And there's no doubt, Brett, that there's the illusion because, you know, the big firms are there with coffee mugs and T-shirts and pub nights and pizza and, and so on, things that smaller firms can't, can't do. And so, you know, they're in, they're in our students' faces in, the, in a way that, that smaller firms aren't. We also, too, I mean, we're, to an extent, we're, law schools are market-driven as well. You know, I mean, if, if you know, we, we provide opportunities that students want and students, a lot of students come to law school having been raised on visions of what they've seen on television. And there was one law school, I won't name, but one law school a, a few years ago that tried to ban big firms from being active on campus for the reasons that, that you adverted to. And there was a student revolt. But having said all of that, though, we, we really do go out of our way to try to, to make students aware of the whole range of professional yeah. opportunities. And that starts, in fact, in the very first week, of the, either day one or day two of law school, depending on the year, where we, we, we introduce our students to lawyers. And mm -hmm. some of them come from big firms, but, but probably more of them come from not big firms than, than do. We, we run uh, you know, panels throughout the year on you know, small firms, medium firms, public interest work. We, uh, we've supported um, a, um, a, a rural law club at the, at the law school to encourage students to think about, not just about small firms, but firms outside of Calgary and Edmonton. Mm -hmm. like we, we, we've been running something that we call, we call it the Medicine Hat Project. We just call it that because that's where it began, but it actually includes Lethbridge and Red Deer and Medicine Hat and places like Brooks and Nanton and other as well. And, and that is that we go there um, we, and we take our students and we invite students who haven't yet started law school and we introduce them to the, uh, to the local bar. I love that. Um, so yeah, yeah it's, it's wonderful. And so, um, so even before they, uh, before they set foot in, in our law school building, they've actually had a barbecue or, mm -hmm. or a lunch 
uh, with, yeah, and I think you know that's that's the approach that I think is the right approach. You know, it's not about bashing big firms. And, and again, I had right there were some there were some very hard days. You know, working at the big shop, but like overall, I had an amazing experience. Yeah. Made tremendous friendships, learned a ton, made good money. You know, I, so it's not to me about shining a negative light on the big firms, but it's about opening, broadening the horizon exactly. earlier. Exactly. And, you know, maybe introducing the students. And it sounds like you guys are way ahead of the game in this regard. And that, you know, speaks to 100% placement, right? Because there is need out there if there's enough awareness for the students. Absolutely. You know, unfortunately, the debate does sort of often end up being you either. The only alternative to going to a big firm is to to trying to bash them, as you say, to put them down. Um, And and that's another false dichotomy. Agreed. um, and, and I'll say, you know, the one data point doesn't make a doesn't make a success story, but it is kind of neat that a year ago, our gold medalist uh, chose to, who could have had the pick of jobs anywhere in this country chose to go to Medicine Hat mm-hmm. um, rather wow. than to. Uh, yeah, that's really interesting. Brett, do you have something to add to that? Uh, well, no, just to, just to the comment earlier about, um, you know, the resources, because, you know, obviously the big firms come yeah. in with lots of resources, the shiny car, here's, here's a sweet <laughs> backpack, you know, like it's never going to be feasible for solo and small firms to, you know, put those, those types of resources to get together to get that type of exposure. Um, despite the fact that they make up a much larger percentage of the perspe- profession, but a company, you know, like Good Lawyer or something akin, where we have more resources than a solo on their own, but are sort of a conduit for for those for those smaller, you know, independents or small firms mm-hmm. to potentially get access. Um, you know what I mean? Like, and it doesn't have to be Good Lawyer, but like some sort of aggregator of the small firms that can combine resources to you know compete with the big guys. Well, and that's. In a way, that's what we kind of try to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we try to we try to to work with firms. I will say too that another challenge is that we have found that one of our challenges is convincing small shops that they they should hire students. In fact, when we began the Medicine Hat project, in fact, our very first meeting with the Medicine Hat uh, Bar Association, um, and we now have a wonderful relationship with them. But there was a bit of frostiness, you know. Um, there hadn't been an articling student in Medicine Ad, and I don't know, in several years anyway. Wow. And they said, oh, we've got a good thing going here. We don't want this competition. And mm. at the time, the average age of the Medicine Ad, the bar in Medicine Ad was like 62 or something like that. And, you know, we said, look, th- th- that's not competition. That's your pension plan walking <laughs> through the door here, you know. Mm-hmm. And and we said, by the way, it not, you can't just say you're going to hire articling students. If you want to be in the race, you've got to hire summer students. Right, exactly. And, and so, you know, we, we, we worked with them and helped some firms now have banded together to create a shared summer position. We have to watch out for conflicts, but, you know, the mm-hmm. student spends the first half of a summer at Firm X and the second half at Firm Y. Um, makes it a bit more affordable. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a while, actually, the, the Medicine Hat Police was part of that consortium as well, and they were taking a, a law student for part of the summer. Yeah, you, you really have to work work at those sorts of things. And, and I will say, too, I really do believe that there are two parts to the sales pitch. One is convincing students that if you don't go to a big firm, you're not a failure. But secondly, is convincing small firms that they can, can, can and, need right. to, and need to compete. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, no, that's uh, that's great to hear. I, I love that you're taking that proactive step to ensure that these law students do know their options. I think that's super important. It's something that I know Brett, you and me both agree on could have been done a little bit better at our time at U of A. Oh, I was just, uh, I was just, yeah, yeah shotgun. I have no funneled. idea. Yeah, exactly. You're kind of funneled into the big firms and we were both fortunate enough to get one of those jobs, but we do know a lot of people who didn't. And I'll also say that I love to hear the fact that you guys have a, an emphasis on a U of C law has an emphasis on the practical aspects of it because I'll tell you personally for me when I came out of law school and into the firm I had no idea what was going on now luckily for me I'm a bit more of a hands-on person than a, a straight academic so uh, I was able to adapt quite quickly but I did it was interesting to watch that some of the people with the highest GPAs in law school struggled uh, for the first few months, because it, it's such a, a harsh transition to, you know, practical mm -hmm. practice for, sorry, I, I, too many of the same word there. Oh but, <laughs> but, you know, I, I love the fact that you're taking um, that initiative to, to expose them to, oh, here's how you incorporate a company, like valuable information. Hey, here's what a shareholder agreement is. You hear about these things in the abstract, but obviously you guys have taken the, the extra step of actually exposing them to some of that work. And it's because, you know, we believe that the, that dichotomy between theory and skills is a false dichotomy. Right. And so we think our, our philosophy at Calgary is that if we teach students how to do things, we're going to deepen their level of understanding. Right. And conversely, if we teach them, show them how things work in, in society, that will uh, we'll deepen their understanding of, of, of society. So right. we, we really believe that the Theory and skills go go hand in glove. You mentioned your your experience at the law firm. I, I have the same one. Well, probably many of us do. Right. I remember the first day in the law firm and a partner coming in and and in those days we all worked in the library together and pointing at me and saying, "Do this or find this." And I had this feeling of terror. I thought, "I don't know anything. I don't have a right. clue. I, I don't know anything at all." Exactly. Um, so lesson number one, though, of course, in working in a law firm, at least in those days was you find the assistants, you get to know. Yes, you nailed it. Best yeah. advice you had. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you, yeah, you bet. Because um, they were wonderful. You know. Well, and I think, you know, your focus, you, and you mentioned this, I think, early in the podcast today, was fundamentally law is a service profession. Yeah. So yeah. you can be the, you know, the smartest legal expert in the world, but if you can't provide good service to your clients, and be empathetic to what your clients actually want. Like I find that sometimes lawyers forget, you know, this file or this case is not about you. It is about like, you know, client outcomes yep. and that is core to service. So to not learn how to service clients, you know, it'd be like an electrician learning how to do all the things they do strictly from textbooks and not getting their hands dirty. That's right. It's like how lawyers or how law students, you know, come out of a lot of law schools today. And certainly what I felt when I came out of law school, well, and you know, as the as the business model of legal practice changes too, you know, you wonder whether the traditional model is sustainable at all. I, I'm I'm frankly quite cynical about the future of articling. I think articling's a, I think it's a terrible system, and we can talk about that if you if you like. Please. But even leaving that aside, I I just worry that it's not a sustainable mm -hmm. system either. You know, I remember the the very first time when I was a young lawyer, um, I appeared in the Court of Appeal, uh, the Nova Scotia Court of Appeal, on my own. Um, one of the senior partners came along and just sat in the back um, the whole day. And then uh, at the breaks, he would give me sort of, you know, critique me, give me advice and, and so on. 
And of course, I wasn't sophisticated enough to think this way at the time, but he gave up a whole day's worth of billings just, just to, to do that. And that was, a, you know, in those days, you know, Nova Scotia, it's, you know, Maritimes are maybe an old fashioned place, but that was just kind of part of the ethos of things. I'm not, the business model today wouldn't allow that. No. And so we put, stu- totally. we put students and young lawyers in, 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 in unfair situations and we expect them to learn. And the other thing that's related, I'd say, is, you know, when, when, when I started, I had for several years, I, you know, I carried bags and I went through documents and sat in on meetings. And the theory was that over time, I would just kind of soak up enough that I could sort of, you know, I would develop wisdom. Yeah. If technology is doing more of the kind of scut work that young lawyers and articling students traditionally do, how will we inculcate wisdom, um, mm-hmm. not just knowledge, but wisdom in, in, in the next generation of leaders of our profession? And I worry about that a lot. So is this why you think articling's days are numbered? Well, no, I think articling, I, well, there are two questions. Why, its days are numbered, I think, because of the business model. Yeah, yeah economics sure that, don't work. There's, yeah, no, right. there's no proper incentive to mentor and that's train right. and, people. And many clients won't pay for articling students any, any <laughs> no. longer. Um, but the other question is, why should it go? And, and I think that the problems with articling are numerous. One, it pretends to a one-size-fits-all model. Mm-hmm. You know, the reality is, if I go to a firm like BLG um, or McInnes Cooper, they will make sure that I'm not going to be able to do any real damage mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, for, for multiple years. Um, but if I'm going to go to a place like Medicine Hat or books or wherever and be competent to do a divorce one day and a DUI the next day and incorporate a company the third day. Maybe I should have to article for three years to be that competent. So, so one size fits all is it's just doesn't reflect the realities of our, of our professional lives. Um, Secondly, we take the most vulnerable people and put them, we we make them be the police officers, right? Even if the law society wanted to, to properly, you know, police articling, they don't have the resources to. That's so right. we make the, the, the students themselves, the most vulnerable people in our profession, be the whistleblower. And, you know, we know, I, I had very good articles, I'm sure you guys did too, but we also know people who spent the whole year photocopying. Um, uh, or the whole year completely out of their depth. Or, yeah. or complete, absolutely. <laughs> And that's only the tip of the iceberg. I mean, there, there's a lot of abuse that goes on yes. that uh, we, just, we just don't know because we don't see. And, and so that's grossly unfair. And the third problem, or a third problem with articling, is that it's based on a short-term spot market for legal services. So if you have the good fortune, to, I mean, to, to speak in Alberta terms, you have the good fortune to graduate when oil's at 100. Um, <laughs> you know, you're going to get snapped up no matter, no matter how slack or poor you are, poor student you are. If you have the misfortune to graduate when law when oil's at 10, you could be Lord Denning reincarnate and you're not going to get an articling position. And that's just wrong. There's no, there's no assessment of the medium to long-term needs of the rule of law. And that's wrong too. So for those three reasons, I, I think it's a terrible system, even though I have very, very happy memories of my own articling experience. But as so, a system, I just don't think it's good. 
Yeah, so I do want to be respectful of your time. And I mean, this is a rabbit hole that we could go down for hours, obviously, but maybe just real quickly, and we will revisit, I I am going to take you up on your offer to revisit with you after the first semester, and we can, we can uh, uh, touch base and see how the online learning is going. But if you were in charge uh, of, you know, uh, setting up articling across Canada, or even in Alberta, um, what what different model would you then use? Well, it's a it's a good question, and and the the honest answer is, I I don't know for sure. I don't know for sure, um, because there are people who are smarter than I, who uh, who who are, uh, who to whom I would defer. But but I will say this: when I was in Australia, Australia like us had the traditional model of articling. Right. Um, they were beginning the transition of what, what they call generically the, the college of law model. It's kind of the, you're familiar with the, um, the LPP, the legal practice program right. at Ryerson. Mm-hmm. And when I was there, about half the states still had articling and half the states had the LPP, the college of law model. And there's no doubt that um, in those days, that, when I first arrived there at the beginning of the 90s, it was the B team who didn't get articling positions, right? The A team, quote, A team, got, all got articling positions. Now, though, when I talk to former students of mine who were senior partners, many of them, at big firms, they say we get a much more consistently trained project or product from the College of Law model. Hmm. So I think that the, the LPP model would be, would be a better replacement, uh, would be the, a good replacement for articling. The problem they have in Ontario, though, is the business model. It's better, but it's more expensive. Better, it's more consistent, it's more thorough, um, but it's also more expensive. So how do you come up with a system for, for, for paying for that? Right. Is it possible to incorporate some of it or all of it in, into the current JD? Um, if not, is there something else? Um, do you tax every lawyer in the country to, to pay for this? Um, and those are all things that I just don't know enough to be able to comment on. Yeah, you know, and I'm not I'm not exactly sure how it how it works, you know, in the the doctor world, the vet world, the dentist world. But my understanding is there's some sort of practicum associated with the actual degree where they like go into a hospital for years and and they and they and they work for free or very they get well, paid. Th- yeah, I mean the, the the medical world's the one I know best, and but unfortunately it's not a good comparison for us because. There's so much government funding, mm-hmm. uh, and that's the problem. I mean, there's not a lot of government funding, Funny. direct funding to support uh, to support legal education. You know, we all know we need more doctors in society, but at least in the circles in which I run, there's not a lot of clamoring for more lawyers. <laughs> which is so interesting, unfortunately, because you know, and I'm just going to steal. I, lo- I love stealing this stat from the Clio report of last year. Seventy-seven percent of legal needs, and this is a U.S. stat. Oh, but Canada is definitely in the same ballpark are unmet. Uh, like there's a blue ocean of huge, legal needs. A huge, a huge yeah. ocean. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, excellent. Well, thank you for those insights. We do need to ask you one final question before uh, we let you go here. And actually you answered it earlier because I was going to ask you what advice you have for a uh, student about to graduate law school, which you answered in, in a great way. So let me uh, rephrase that. And just to be clear, that was be honorable, work hard, work hard and, and take, risks. take risks. I love yeah. that. I love, love that. that. Great recap, Brett. Yes. Uh, but so let me just uh, personalize this a little bit. Uh, is there any books, resources, or anything like that that have helped you out along your journey, uh, have been very meaningful to you that you think would help others along theirs, whether that be in law or any other uh, aspect of life? I've been a lucky guy. You know, uh, I, 
have benefited from so many people. You know, my principal when I was articling, the managing partner who said, you know, don't resign from the firm, take a leave of absence. Um, you know, my LLM supervisor who basically steered me towards doctoral studies, Chief Justice Isaac who took me in, that dean at Australia who I worked with. I've benefited from, from sort of the help of so many people. So I guess, uh, you know, I would say too many <laughs> to, to, to name. Sure. Um, but uh, I, will, I will also say this though, I have found that one of, one of the best tools that I've ever been able to draw upon is history, is the, is the mm -hmm. study of history. I, I'm, my, I'm not a historian by training, my undergraduate degrees in biology, um, but I like history and I read a lot of history and almost every issue that we face today has been faced before. And the answers, I mean, 2020 is different from 1920 or 1820. Right. So the answers will have to be different. Right. Uh, in terms of giving you know, a glimpse into how society works and human nature works and all those sorts of, thing, all those sorts of things, I think history is, uh, history is, uh, is kind of my go-to resource. Excellent. And actually, I'll just uh, add in on that. If anyone's looking for a fantastic history podcast, I can't recommend Dan Carlin's Hardcore History enough. That's just one of my personal favorites. And I'm also a huge history buff myself. I uh, wish I could spend more time reading and learning about it because to your point, there's answers there and they're, they're fascinating. Well, so let me just then f finish with there. I mean, if you look at, so there are many people in our profession thinking, oh my God, the world's coming to an end. You know, right. well, how, how can we possibly, or, or, uh, we're going to have to sell our souls in order to in order to survive in the future. But if you look at the legal profession, you know we we lawyers we facilitated the transition from from uh, feudalism to constitutional government, right. and then from constitutional government we to uh, the industrial revolution, um, from that to the expansion of the franchise, uh, from that to the emergence of the welfare state, from that to the uh, emergence of the, um, the post-Second World War um, international legal order. We still wear black robes and tabs and we say, my Lord, and we bow. And there are all those, I believe, I personally believe, very important outward uh, testaments to our, to our history. But through each transition, we've fundamentally recalibrated our professional sites. And, we've, and by doing that, we've, we've been relevant to every one of those transitions. The question facing us as lawyers today is, are we gonna be relevant for the next transition? That's, the, I think, the way to frame the question. I love that. I, I, always, I always say this and it doesn't stick with a, a lot of, a lot of people kind of goes, they miss my point, but I think the law is the coolest thing that humans have ever created. It ties everything else we do together. Absolutely. Uh, and yeah, you know, are we going to be relevant moving forward is, is, is the question. To the ask. law will be relevant. The question is, are we, we lawyers, That's what I mean. we participants yeah. going to be relevant. Exactly. Absolutely. That's right. Well, Dean Holloway, this has been a true pleasure. I think I speak for both me and Brett here that we greatly appreciate you taking what I I'm sure is very valuable time in the middle of your day. Um, thank you very much for, for coming on the podcast and we will definitely be in touch about part two uh, after that first semester. I thank you for having me. I'm, I'd be delighted to be back. And next time we'll play some music too. How about that? We'll work some music into it. I like that, it. Yeah, that sounds perfect. That sounds perfect.
Thanks again to Dean Holloway for being on the show. If you like what you heard, please rate, download, and subscribe. Until next time, we hope you all have a great week.